Sup, you beautiful bastards. Welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show. Buckle up, make sure you hit that like button, otherwise we'll punch you in the throat and let's just jump into it. Whores come out of your burrows like rabbits, you fucking nymphomaniacs is not the chorus to the new little baby song, but rather is something that was shouted by over 100 men from the windows of a residence hall at a college in Madrid, Spain. The students appeared all together shouting towards the all-female part of the college, Santa Monica. The video of this incident has gone viral, causing outrage across the country, including with the Spanish prime minister who said, we need a united and common message of rejection of these machista behaviors, which are unexplainable, unjustifiable, and absolutely repugnant. And a spokesperson for a progressive party in the capital saying, After this, they will ask us why we feel afraid in the streets. Now, as far as the school, they have taken punitive action against some of the men involved, including the expulsion of at least one student. In a statement, the school mentioning other responses to the event, like community service, public apologies, and obligatory participation in gender equality courses. Now, as far as why did they do this, I mean, why would you do this in general, but why... Here, uh, looking into it a little further, a news outlet in Spain reported that this chant is actually an annual tradition at the school and upperclassmen teach it to the new students every year. Which of course has now raised questions of, well, why are you just punishing the students? You know this happens. Why has the school allowed this or turned a blind eye to it in the past, but now is expelling students to try to save face? Which I think kind of hits on the notion of why people are angry at more than just people, but institutions. Well, in no way am I on the side of the men in this story. It really does feel like the, the people at the top of this just allowed it. And they're using these people as kind of the sacrificial goat. And it'll be interesting to see if anything else comes from it or if, you know, this action, it, it does exactly what they want. It takes a spotlight off them and, you know, the story goes away and people are like, oh yeah, I remember something about a few bad apples. And then, how can I tie these next two stories together? I know. So President Biden, as I was finishing up today's show, announced, I'm pardoning all prior federal offenses of simple marijuana possession. There are thousands of people who were previously convicted of simple possession who may be denied employment, housing, or educational opportunities as a result. But before you light one up where you probably shouldn't, this is just for federal offenses, with Biden there calling on governors to pardon simple state marijuana possession offenses, as well as calling for the process of reviewing how marijuana is scheduled under federal law. So massive and big news that when it hits your ears, maybe you think to yourself, I wonder what Joe Rogan thinks about this. And whatever your opinion of Joe is, it makes sense because podcasting is such a big and powerful medium right now. The industry is expected to be worth $4 billion in the next couple of years, which is why it was so interesting to see Hollywood Reporter release a full list of the 40-ish most powerful people in podcasting, saying they were taking reach and influence into account to determine the leading dealmakers and front-facing creatives pushing the industry forward. And depending on your interests, the list makes sense and maybe also has some surprising names. Of course, the no-duh on the list was Joe Rogan, with them noting his $100 million exclusivity deal with Spotify, though the numbers may be different. Hollywood Reporter also highlighting Emma Chamberlain, who of course got her start on YouTube and actually continues to make waves in tons of different industries, as well as Alex Cooper and the Call or Daddy podcast. But I want to use this as a question of what are your favorite podcasts? Part of it is for this story. And also part of it is I'm, I'm running out of stuff to listen to on hikes and I need stuff to listen to. Otherwise, the, the voices in my head get very loud and I have to actually deal with my feelings. Thank you in advance. And then the Herschel Walker story keeps getting crazier and crazier, kind of like Herschel after all the CTE. Like this man's life story is he needed more protection, whether it be better condoms or better helmets. Cause we, you know, we already talked about the Daily Beast reporting that the former football star, now US Senate candidate had paid for his girlfriend to have an abortion back in 2009. This despite his incredibly extremist views on abortion, which he has publicly shouted saying there shouldn't even be exceptions in cases of rape, incest, or where the safety of the pregnant person's life is at risk. And when the allegations came out, the woman remained 
remained anonymous, with Walker as expected denying them, saying he doesn't know who this woman could be, and you know, he just gives money to people. To which the Daily Beast was like, okay, bet. And the outlet dropped another massive bombshell yesterday saying this is literally the mother of one of his children, with a woman who had a multi-year relationship with Walker even after having the abortion, saying that her main desire to remain anonymous was because she wanted to protect her family's privacy. With the outlet adding, Walker has publicly acknowledged the child as his own and the woman proved she is the child's mother and provided credible evidence of a long-term relationship with Walker. Which I mean, that's a whole other aspect of this. A few months ago, Walker, who often rails against absentee fathers, confirming that he had three children he had previously not made public. Something that maybe a lot of people didn't know about until his son, Christian Walker, also started shouting out at the top of his lungs on social media. But yeah, if these allegations are true, Walker had a very close relationship with this woman. Which is also why we saw her speaking out against him after he denied the claim, saying, you know, he had no idea who this could be. And so this woman said he didn't accept responsibility for the kid we did have together, and now he isn't accepting responsibility for the one that we didn't have. That says so much about how he views the role of women in childbirth versus his own. And now he wants to take that choice away from other women and couples entirely. With a woman who is a Christian also going on to say that while Walker talks about Christianity a lot, he uses it when it works for him. Adding that he never expressed any regret about the abortion that he urged her to have and paid for and adding, I don't think there's anywhere in the Bible where it says, have four kids with four different women while you're with another woman. And where it praises not being a present parent or that an abortion is an okay thing to do when it's not the right time for you, but a terrible thing for anyone else to do when you're running for the Senate. He picks and chooses where it's convenient for him to use that religious crutch. So this potentially dealing a damaging blow to people who are going to vote for Herschel Walker, but also care about the truth. I'm not sure how much of a crossover there is. Right, a lot of the pushback initially was this is some random person making a claim, people trying to sow doubt, whereas uh, some have taken a different approach. Like former NRA spokesperson Dana Loge, who called her one broad and a skank. And what's wild is Walker's actually fundraising on this, with top members of his campaign saying they had a record fundraising day after the allegations broke on Monday, claiming that they raised half a million dollars. And Walker is a wild one, man. Like the, uh, like in an interview today, he said, I know this is untrue. I know nothing about any woman having an abortion, but then also going on to make a series of very confusing statements, repeatedly saying that he's already been forgiven and also suggesting that there wouldn't be any shame in having undergone an abortion, or that the whole forgiveness thing is a point that Walker and his campaign have been repeating. It's all lies, but if maybe you believe it, there's religious redemption and forgiveness, which I will say, it's not like a rare thing, but hey, uh, we'll have to wait to see if the polling shows any change remotely, because I think for a lot of people, it's just R versus D. It's not how it should be, but how many things in life are. And then I want to take a second to thank the sponsor of today's show, Keeps. You know, two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time that they're 35. Maybe you have that friend or that family member that's dealing with hair loss, and hey, if you don't want that, you don't have to just sit by and wait for it to happen. Because whether you're looking to prevent hair loss, stimulate hair growth, or just even take better care of the hair that you have, Keeps has you covered. Keeps helps you stop hair loss before it's too late with a scientific and a affordable approach to treatments that are up to 90% effective at reducing and stopping further hair loss. And in addition to clinically proven treatments, Keeps has an award-winning all-natural thickening shampoo and conditioner system. Plus, you can get these products delivered directly to your door, meaning no more going in person to the doctor's office for your prescription, saving you both valuable time and money. So if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to Keeps.com slash DeFranco, or just click that link in the description to receive 50% off your first order. And then, as promised, let's do a follow-up to that Logan Paul interview. That got a lot of attention, comments, reactions, some here on the full 
whole interview on YouTube. Others just responding to the clip where Logan Paul was talking about Bad Bunny. So a lot of the conversation has stemmed around that, right? Logan Paul saying that Bad Bunny is a hypocrite, that he is exploiting Puerto Rico. There was a lot of confusion around what he was talking about, right? Because uh, Logan Paul and others, they take advantage of what was referred to as Act 22. But that is something that's only available to outside individual investors to get them to come to Puerto Rico. So there was a question of, is that an accusation that Bad Bunny has some sort of shell company, that he's doing something nefarious? Or is it more likely that he was conflating two different things together? Now, Bad Bunny's company does qualify for Act 20, which is different because that involves businesses in Puerto Rico that export goods and services. And a key thing there is that's not it's like some unique exception just for Bad Bunny. Any Puerto Rican whose company qualifies is eligible. Right? So one is for individuals not from Puerto Rico. One is for businesses, meaning that Bad Bunny technically himself still pays taxes. And for many, there lies a fundamental difference. One excludes them, sons and daughters of Puerto Rico, and the other is just different. And so to touch on that subject and also talk about the situation in general with Puerto Rico, I reached out to and spoke with Bianca Grolo. So Bianca, just to kind of jump into it, yesterday with Logan Paul, I know I know you watched the, the full interview and, and not just the, the clip that, that blew up on Twitter, but Logan Paul in it, he says, you know, among the, one of the things he wants to be an ally, what would locals want to see more of? How can I aid? Because a, a big part of the question was, you know, I don't think that I... <laughs> have a solution as someone that's just on the mainland. I think, you know, it's talking to people that are locals, talking to people like yourself. And I wanted to know whether it be your opinion or what you've seen, what do you think the answer to that is for people there? So what I would say is that I don't think asking how to give in terms of charity is the right question. Something I try to talk a lot about uh, when I talk about these things related to Puerto Rico is that charity is not the same as justice. So when I talk about the tax incentives, I talk about a matter of justice because you have a tax incentive that's only available to people who move here and not for the local population. That's one thing. And then we see, like you've seen in my work, how certain areas in Puerto Rico are no longer available for the local population. There's no access to certain beaches, even though by law, beaches in Puerto Rico are supposed to be public. So these two specific things have to do more with justice. I think you also have to look at these topics in the context of Puerto Rico, a place that has been occupied and exploited. The solution to that is not necessarily to bring supplies to people after a hurricane. And, and this is not meant as a job for Logan Paul or anyone. This is just an overall theme that, that we see in Puerto Rico. The fact that people have gone two and a half weeks without electricity after Hurricane Maria is not solved by people showing up with a bottle of water and a pack of rice. This is an issue of justice of Puerto Rico having been exploited for centuries for its resources. So the answer is not as simple. It's a matter of understanding where certain people are benefiting from certain, whether it be incentives, benefits that are available to a certain section of the population and not for the local population. Well, so I guess that's that's kind of the uh, part of one of the questions is when we were talking about it, it was stemming from a place of the situation is what it is right now. It only changes with uh, a movement that then um, changes the the political system and the, and the players in it is is the answer that they that anyone that is taking advantage of of the system like act 22 that it's just there is they're just always in the wrong is it that is is there some middle ground um i, I guess i guess that's kind of uh the question i was trying to get to and i'm and i'm interested in because uh maybe the situation is black and white right i mean i talked about yesterday like i for my business with a partner specifically was like we are not going there we're not going to take advantage of that that's a horrible idea um but 
Yeah, I'd love to know your thoughts with that. As a reporter, it's not for me to make that judgment. My role is more to inform so people have all the information in order to make a decision for themselves. When something uh, like the, the initial video where Logan Paul announced that he was moving to Puerto Rico, I did a video talking about the incentives because for a lot of people, he has a huge audience. So for a lot of people, they're hearing about the incentives through him for the very first time. And they're hearing about how Puerto Rico is paradise, on how there's this awesome deal where you can come here and not pay taxes. My job as a reporter is to give the full context and be able to show you the other side. So here you have people who can take advantage of all the beautiful things that Puerto Rico has to offer, including those tax incentives. But then on the other side of that, you have a lot of suffering of local Puerto Ricans who want to stay here. And a lot of times they're not able to. So is that for me to tell you, you know, that's a judgment you made for yourself where you told your business partner, that's not something I want to partake in. And that's for everyone to make their different like decisions. For me, it's more about giving you the full information people will have all kinds of opinions on that. And there will be people who will say, you shouldn't, you, you, you know, people like Logan Paul didn't create the incentive. So yesterday, obviously, the, the thing that that most people are focusing on is what Logan Paul accused Bad Bunny of. And something you talked about was the incentives not being available to people that live there, that it's this thing that's only about bringing foreigners uh, to the island to exploit. Is, is the situation that he was equating Act 22 with Act 20. And if that is the case, can you walk us through uh, the, the differences between those two? Yeah, so I'm not sure uh, exactly what incentive he was referring to. The reality is that Puerto Rico has a code of incentives with a lot of different ones, most of which do apply to the local population. Act 22 is the only one that's only available for people who had been living outside of Puerto Rico for a period of time. And that is for individual investors investors. That's the 0% capital gains tax. That's super attractive. When you think about people investing in different things like cryptocurrency stocks, you move to Puerto Rico and you pay no taxes on that. So that's been attracting a lot of people here. Act 20 is for corporations. So that's the one that lowers your corporate tax rate to 4%. Those two sometimes are conflated. Act 20 is available to locals as long as they have a corporation where they're exporting services. So they're not the same. But they are both now part of Act 60. And based off of what you're seeing, does it appear that most locals have a, a have a feeling that is those two are different? Bad Bunny is is a local. He was born and raised here. He is using what locals can use versus what has been called Act 22. This is just an outsider thing. Yeah. So I've seen all kinds of different opinions and reactions online. What I will say is that in my recent work, I focus on Act 22, the individual investor incentive, because that is the one that we've seen a tie between Act 22 and displacement and gentrification. So part of my work has been to analyze the properties bought in a specific place and see how many of those were bought by Act 22 beneficiaries. So when I talk about incentives, my work is not focused on who has incentives, who doesn't, who's good and who's bad. It's more about whether these incentives are having an effect on displacement and gentrification. And with Act 22, when we analyzed a neighborhood in what we found is that a lot of people that came to Puerto Rico through Act 22 have been buying a lot of property. And in some of those cases, they're buying entire buildings 
and asking everyone living there to move out because they have different plans for that building. And Bianca, I want to leave it kind of on two notes. One, if you are interested in this situation and you should be, you should definitely follow Bianca and I'm going to link to her uh, different accounts. But two, is there a a final thing that you would, I would want to do the same thing, open the floor to you. Is there a final thing that you would like to say? That my work focuses on the connection between these incentives with displacement. You know, as a reporter, I'm not here to make a judgment about whether the incentive is good or bad. But I will say that as a Puerto Rican, I do not want to see local Puerto Ricans pushed out of their land. I do not want to see them get letters that say you have to move out in 30 days because someone who came here through an incentive invited by the government has now bought your building. And because they have a profit motive, now you have to move out and you'll have a hard time finding a place to live. That's the part I'm most interested in. And that's what I focus my work on. Bianca, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. As promised, I'm going to include links in the description down below if you want to follow her. I think she does a fantastic job. And while you do or don't do that, of course, I'd love to know your thoughts on that conversation and that topic in general. And then on an unrelated topic, I'm craving something sweet, which actually makes this a great time to thank the delicious sponsor of today's show, Catalina Crunch. My new favorite thing to put in my mouth, giggity, is those Catalina Crunch cookies. They're insanely delicious. They got that protein and fiber that I need and crave. I mean, I'm hooked. And, you know, as many of you know, and you're probably tired of me talking about it, I've been working on taking better care of myself this year. But I don't want to have to give up sweets. Like, I don't think you can have long-term success if you just deprive yourself and you just, you're, you're fighting cravings every day. And I was nomming on some peanut butter goodness yesterday, but the chocolate mint cookies are my absolute favorite. The flavor is so rich and delicious. Plus, they're low sugar and low carb, so they fit into my new eating habits. You know, I can treat them as an awesome dessert or something I'm nomming on while I'm on my hikes. Hey, treat yourself or if you're not selfish like I am, uh, maybe your family or friends with delicious packs of cookies by going to CatalinaCrunch.com slash DeFranco and entering code DeFranco at checkout to get 15% off plus free shipping on any Catalina Crunch snack. Or even better, set it and forget it. Subscribe and get an even larger discount. And awesomely, this is the best deal available. It even beats Amazon. So be sure to take advantage of it while it lasts. And then, will gay and or interracial marriage be outlawed in America? It is a weird fucking world where we're even asking that question. But it is a question that many are asking after the Supreme Court undermined the right to privacy in its decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, which is the foundation of both the presidents that protected these essential rights. Because if you don't remember, in his opinion, backing the decision, Justice Clarence Thomas literally called for the case that established gay marriage, Obergefell v. Hodges, to be reconsidered. Which is why you have so many people right now saying, hey, we need federal protections on this today because if this goes to the Supreme Court, we don't know what's going to happen. With Democrats in Congress apparently hearing those concerns, the House passing legislation called the Respect for Marriage Act with overwhelming bipartisan support. Also, if you're wondering at this stage what overwhelming is, that included 47 Republicans, so about a quarter of the caucus. And it's something that's popular. The proposal appears to have overwhelming support by the public, with recent polls showing that 70% of Americans support gay marriage. But despite all that, Republican senators have been very hesitant to vote for the bill ahead of the midterms as Democratic leadership had intended. So as a result, the senators leading the charge asked Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to push a vote until after the midterms, and he agreed. And so while we wait to see what happens from here, to, to try to get a better idea about this, we reached out to Senator Tammy Baldwin. She's one of the members leading to push to get enough senators on board, and she told us what this bill does and why it's so important. So the first thing it does is it repeals the Defense of Marriage Act, which sets up a, a federal definition of uh, non-recognition of marriages between two people of the same sex. And so that would no longer be the law of the land. Um, and secondly, it says that the federal government, through a constitutional provision called full faith and credit, will give full faith and credit to the acts of states. Um, so if you're legally married uh, in a state that um, uh, solemnizes same-sex marriages, um, 
federal government will recognize that marriage as well as other states being required to uh, respect that marriage. I also asked the senator, you know, what issues have been raised by the Republicans? And Baldwin said that many wanted a clarification that the bill would protect religious liberties and not create a new mandate requiring religious institutions to respect gay or interracial marriage. But they're also noting that there has been clarifying language put into the legislation to ensure that it just pertains to state recognition of marriage and adding. I think the other um, issue that was being raised that only time will help us settle is uh, an accusation that this was going to be uh, uh, pushed before the midterm elections. And um, uh, so it was a political act rather than um, something that we're doing because we're very serious about passing this into law and very serious about protecting people's rights. And so it's, it, it seems uh, pretty clear to me that um, we gain greater support after the midterms than we had prior to the midterms. And I will say, like, the, the timing thing is something that personally bothers me. I think it's something that annoys other people. I think there's no better time than now. But I'm also not in Congress and having to make concessions and compromise and work with other people. So I asked, are there any other reasons as far as why you and other senators leading the charge have asked the majority leader uh, to push the, the floor vote until after the midterms? Because, I don't know, I think there is a belief that there there is no better time than now, um, you can say that people are making their their votes kind of clear without having to bring a vote to the floor, but it, it does feel somewhat different, doesn't it? Yeah, I understand the the sentiment. Um, for me, I have approached this since uh, since day one, uh, since even the threat of the overturning of Roe versus Wade was. Um, I, you know, was with the leaked opinion was uh, around that um, that this was something that we had to do and that we had to uh, succeed. And I think that uh, the prospect of a message of failure, uh, in other words, not being able to overcome that uh, filibuster, um, would uh, disrupt even further people's lives who are already feel. Uh, uncertain. And a key thing here, and I think this is one of the most important things that we talked about because I think specifics really, really matter here as a numbers game. I asked, after you wait, the, the midterms are done, how many votes are you going to get from Republicans? To which he said, If I were to give you my uh, best educated guess, I think we'll have either 13 or 14 uh, Republicans join us. Now, as far as if the, the word is kept there or that is accurate, We'll have to wait and see. But while we do that, given everything, of course, I'd love to pass the question off to you. What are your thoughts here? And then democracy itself is on the ballot this November is a, a statement that, I mean, I'm someone that believes in it and even I am tired of hearing it. But also, I mean, it's better than democracies in the rear view or democracies in the trash. But unfortunately, it is an accurate statement because of the very simple fact. And just this is the thing to take away from this story. Over half of all Republican nominees for Senate, House and key state offices have questioned or denied the results of the 2020 election, with a Washington Post analysis counting 299 election deniers in total. And you may think, okay, well, they're not all gonna win, and I'll say, yeah, that's true. Though, at the, the very least, it's possible they'll just claim their own electoral losses were fraudulent, further undermining democratic institutions. But for the others, it's not a small number. 174 of them are running for securely Republican seats, and another 51 will run in tightly contested races. We're talking governors, lieutenant governors, secretaries of state, attorneys general, congress members, all of whom will have some degree of authority over future elections. Which is why right now you have a lot of scholars saying the United States mirrors trends in other countries that have slipped into authoritarianism, like 
like one professor who studies legislative politics saying it is a disease that is spreading through our political process. This is no longer about Donald Trump. This is about the entire electoral system and what constitutes legitimate elections. All of that is now up in the air. And while abortion is an issue that moves Democrats, it's still very likely that a lot of Republicans are going to win. Soft on crime allegations have been very effective in moving their base. And right now, Democrats are worried about dollars because after nearly 100 days of declining gas prices this summer, the pumps at some states are pushing the national average back up. And OPEC's new move yesterday to cut oil production is expected to drive prices even higher. This despite the White House urging Saudi Arabia and other OPEC nations to keep the oil flowing, especially after Russia invaded Ukraine. A plea that has now been flatly ignored, even though the U.S. sells billions of dollars in weapons to the kingdom. And so to try and work around this, you have the Biden administration saying it will release 10 million barrels of oil from the strategic reserve to keep prices down, adding that it will work with Congress on additional tools and authorities to reduce OPEC's control over energy prices. But still, in the short term, you are going to see gas prices jump in some swing states like Nevada, Arizona, and Ohio, as well as, you know, it has some close local races, but in California, where prices have shot up over $2 per gallon above the national average, spiking to the highest level ever recorded in the state. And while, yes, it's more of a blue state, it is expected to have multiple competitive house races. And it's also going to be interesting to see what happens to President Biden's approval rating because it's been moving up, but still only up to 44%. But for now, that's where we are, and we'll have to wait to see what happens. And then there's a mass shooting today. It's, a, it's an epidemic that we know too well here in the United States, but this one actually happened in Thailand. And the details are as horrifying as they are heartbreaking. It took place in a rural northeastern province as one of the poorest in the country. And the gunman, a 34-year-old man armed with a 9mm handgun and a knife, entered a child care center where police said that his own son was enrolled in. He then massacred dozens of people, some of them as young as two years old, as well as a teacher who was eight months pregnant. He then reportedly left the building and took off in a pickup truck, shooting at people as he drove and ran others over. Police then issuing a most wanted notice for the gunman, but before they could stop him, he arrived home where he shot himself, his wife, and their four-year-old child. And in total, he left at least 38 people dead, including himself and at least 24 children, as well as wounding 10 others, six of them critically. Which makes this the deadliest shooting perpetrated by a single gunman in Thailand's history. And it comes not long after a mass shooting in 2020 where a soldier used an assault rifle to murder at least 29 people at a shopping mall. So now, of course, people are grieving, first and foremost being those directly affected, the husband of the teacher who was killed at the child care center weeping on local television, saying my wife is due next month and never got to see my wife and child. And of course, we've seen many sending their condolences, including the prime ministers of Britain and Australia, as well as the U.S. Embassy in Thailand. But as far as who was behind this atrocity, authorities say that he was a former police officer who was fired back in June after being arrested for drug possession, specifically methamphetamine. But the national police chief saying that he believes that the gunman was on drugs during the attack, though he didn't provide evidence for that claim, though noting that he was due to appear in court on Friday on drug-related charges. However, you also have a regional police spokesperson saying that the gunman actually had been in court earlier that day for a hearing on those charges, after which he went to the center looking for his son, and he began the rampage when he couldn't find him. But that appears to possibly be contradicted by a teacher who said that he began shooting the moment he reached the center, hitting a group of teachers, eating lunch outside. But the thing is, we, we never may know why, but also there is no why that answers why this fucking horrible thing happened. But what we do know is that Thailand actually has some of Asia's highest gun ownership and gun homicide rates, though it still falls far below the United States. The U.S. accounts for 31% of the gunmen and mass shootings worldwide from 1966 to 2012, even though we're only about 4.4% of the population. But where I'll end this is just my thoughts and my well wishes to all those affected. This is this is an unthinkable tragedy. I can't even comprehend what that hurt is, and I, I, I hope you make it through this. But that is ultimately where today's show ends. As always, thank you for watching and being with me through the, the good and bad and the, the just the crazy of the news cycle. I love your faces. Hug someone that you loved. Let someone you love know about it because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. My name is Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love your faces and I'll see you tomorrow.